Welcome to the Brookwood Church Sunday Message Podcast. This week we are continuing in our series on the many Christmas traditions our culture has developed over the centuries. Our senior pastor, Perry Duggar, is back with a message about God's providence. And our theme verse this week is Proverbs 19.21. You can find additional resources and our message archives on our website at brookwoodchurch.org or on our Brookwood app. with your sleep it helps me when I miss a week and I'm already studied but uh, it it hurts us financially so I hope you'll dig deeply because we uh, have a hard time catching up when we miss a Sunday collection so remember I suggested that you buy 10% fewer presents or spend 10% less on it give away 10% more Spend 10% more time with God. So I hope that you've been able to experience God somewhat during this season. Have you? You have to pause, don't you? And reflect. And there's, you know, I'm not negative on Christmas in any way. um, But you just have to stop yourself at times to just reflect on what it is we're celebrating. So we continue this morning our series, which I've called Christmas Traditions. And in this series, we're considering how and why we celebrate this occasion in our culture. But we're actually looking, more importantly, at what the Christmas story tells us about God's nature. Because if you think about it, this is when God is really beginning to fulfill his plan to redeem humankind. So every action is deliberate. It's purposeful. And it's reflective of himself. You know, whatever we do is reflective of ourselves. Did you know that? And so what God does is even more reflective of himself. And so it's going to be true, especially in this important plan of redemption, which came through the incarnation of his son. So today's focus is the providence of God. And the providence of God relates to God's control. Or do, y'all, do y'all know what that word means? Can you give me the definition No, it's a theological word. If you take out your outline, I think I'm allergic to y'all. I didn't have all this going on upstairs. Proverbs 19, 21. You can make many plans. Read the last part to me. Do you believe that? Do Do you believe your life is out of control? Yeah, I'm looking at you. (laughs) Doesn't seem like it, does it? Do you think your life is controlled by fate, by chance, by circumstance? 
If we're believers in Christ, then it's fundamental to our lives that we know God is in control. That you don't live on the whims of chaos or fate. Now today, in terms of cultural practice, I'm going to consider the origin of Santa Claus. So parents, if you want to speak to your children about this, you might want to take them to their classes, and it's a good time to introduce them. I don't want you to, because I don't want any letters. Or uh, <laughs> So you have your chance. Santa Claus is primarily recognized in North America, United States and Canada. Other countries have different characters who bring gifts to kids at Christmas. England has, do you know? Father Christmas. Germany has Kris Kringle. There's another too. Sometimes there's a couple of them. Finland has Julapuki. Greece, St. Basil. And Russia, Father Frost. And there are more spread throughout the globe. Santa was inspired, however, by a true historical figure. You know his name? Yeah, St. Nicholas. A fourth century Catholic saint who was the Bishop of Myra in Lycia, which is interestingly now the southern coast of Turkey. Turkey was a place where Paul did a lot of evangelism. It's interesting, isn't it, how Islam is pushing out Christianity, because that's where Paul went. That was Asia Minor. Now, a legend about Nicholas was that he gave three bags of gold to three daughters of a poor man who couldn't afford to be married because they lacked dowries. Now, unfortunately, in that time, there weren't many ways for a woman to make a living. So by giving them this gold, he saved them from begging or slavery or some immoral lifestyle for self-support. Another legend was that he restored three boys to life. Now the custom that links Nicholas to Christmas actually began in Holland, where Dutch children placed their wooden shoes by the fireplace on December the 5th to be filled by the saint. The next day was St. Nicholas Feast Day, the 6th. Now the Dutch colonized much of New York before the American Revolutionary War. And they brought with them their tradition of awaiting a nighttime visit from the one they called Center Claus, which was a shortened version of the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas. And of course, you can see how that was easily Americanized into Santa Claus by the late 1700s. Now, Santa Claus has been portrayed many different ways as a tall, thin, gaunt man, a spooky-looking elf, a man wearing a bishop's long coat and mitre, uh, 
and one a Norse huntsman wearing animal skin. But much of our characterization, you know where it comes from? Coca-Cola. Why don't you come take over for me? Elizabeth, come take over. It's, it's actually not Coca-Cola, but they did solidify a lot. They began advertising in the 1920s. But much of the characterization of Santa Claus being a large round man arriving in a flying sleigh pulled by reindeer who drops down chimneys with a bag full of toys comes from a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas written in 1822 by an Episcopal seminary professor named Clement Moore. We know the poem is what? Twas the night before Christmas. So much of what we believe, if you'll find that poem and read it, much of what we believe about Christmas came out of that one poem. There's some debate about whether Clement Moore actually authored it, by the way. But then there was an illustrator named Thomas Nast who settled Santa's appearance with a series of cartoons that he drew for Harper's Weekly, but particularly one in 1881. And he read the poem, A Visit with St. Nicholas, and then he would conjecture. It's interesting, the early, the early drawings had him, Santa, sitting with Union soldiers during the Civil War. And Santa Claus is certainly part of our culture's celebration of Christmas. And I think there's no reason for Christians to be antagonistic about it. We can embrace that, but we embrace more. It's okay to enjoy Santa Claus, Christmas, let children enjoy it. As long as we understand that this is a fun way of celebrating a very important event. And in the birth of Christ, we want to see the providence of God at work in the true story of Christmas. So we compare first sovereignty and providence. Sovereignty is actually an attribute of God. It refers to his authority to rule and control the world. God's sovereignty is based on his position. He's the creator. So he has dominion. He has, in other words, power over all creation, over all creatures. All creatures submit to him. Daniel 4.35. Providence, on the other hand, is an action by God. See, sovereignty is not an action by God. It's a characteristic of His. It's a description of Him. Providence is an action by God sustaining our world and arranging our lives. Providence is the way God causes the universe to function. This universe doesn't function automatically. If you look even at a at a microscopic level, an atom should not hold together. 
with opposite charges. It should repel. The opposite charges repel each other. God holds the universe together. And providence is the way that God works out his sovereign will in our world and our lives. Now you say, well, my life doesn't always go well. Are you living according to God's plan is the first question. But the other, have you asked God what he wants to teach you in that difficulty? Because God's refining our faith through deliberate difficulties. Sometimes the consequences of our own actions, sometimes the refinement of our faith. Romans 8, 28. Sovereign is what he is. Providence is what he does. It's like a president, whether it's Trump or Obama. He's the president. That's who he is or who Obama was. It was it's, it's the title. But in that title is not any action unless he issues executive orders. That's providence. See the difference? Now, God's providence is demonstrated in numerous ways, but I'll point out a couple of prominent ways in the Christmas story. First is supernatural conception. The virgin birth is essential to our salvation. And it was possible only because God is sovereign over humans. God designed the reproductive system. And so he can providentially alter that arrangement. And cause what in our description is a miraculous conception. Because it's other than ordinary. You know, there, nothing's miraculous for God. You know that, don't you? It's just who he is. It may defy what we think are laws, but God lives by his own laws. And so God could providentially cause what in our words is a miraculous conception that would result in the delivery of a child by a virgin. See, it wasn't a virgin birth. It actually was a virgin conception. Birth happened in the ordinary way. Now, a statement that God made to Satan following the fall of Adam and Eve into sin foreshadows that miraculous event. You can look in Genesis 3.15. It's on page 5 if you have the book that we sell. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. Now, this is the first mention of the coming Savior who would be birthed by a human woman. Theologically, for those of you that are real bookworms, it's the proto-evangelium. It's the first time the gospel is mentioned. But notice the change in that verse. From offspring plural to he singular also the word that's translated offspring that's not a literal off, uh, translation the new living sometimes is, um, will err on the side of understandability but it, it obscures the Hebrew 
the word in Hebrew actually means seed. And in the Bible, the word seed always refers to a man, and you know why. But here, the Bible, in its only example, refers to the seed of a woman. Not only would this promised Messiah be born to a human mother, he would be conceived in a most unusual way without a human father. Look at this passage in Isaiah. All right, then the Lord himself will give you the sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. That's a 700-year-old prophecy. 700 years before the birth of Christ, I should say. 2,700 years old for us. And it was fulfilled that very first Christmas. Look at Matthew chapter 1. And this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now some of us have grown too comfortable with that statement. You know that? We have read this story so many times that it ceases to impact us. But this is a verse that we should go, how is this possible? And why would God do it? And you might even ask, why is it important that the Messiah be born of a virgin? Anybody have that question? Do you? Y'all are scared at the 9 o'clock service. <laughs> why is it important? All right, I'm going to call your name and you tell me theologically why it's important. Who's ready? The Bible teaches that Jesus was fully human. A physical body just like ours. So did he have a sprained ankle sometime? Yeah. Did he sweat? Was he sore after a long walk? If not, it was because he walked all the time. But he received from his mother, Mary, a human body. But he was also fully God with an eternal spiritual nature. For Jesus to be God, he, he had to be born of God. John 3, 6. Which is a verse directed to us. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. If you have an eternal nature, it's because you have been, what's the word? born again spiritually by God in the person of the Holy Spirit. If you're just a good human, you're not a Christian. You could be a good human. But you have to have that dimension, that spiritual dimension that comes from the second birth. Being conceived also by the Holy Spirit prevented Jesus from inheriting the sin nature of Adam. Romans 5, 12, 17, 19, Hebrews 7, 26. See, not only do we act sinfully, we have a nature that's already fallen. 
but Jesus didn't. So the virgin conception enabled eternal God to become perfect man, born without a sin nature. Now, was he capable of sinning? Was he? Yeah, he was capable of sinning. So was he really just God pretending to be a man? Well, how did he work miracles as a man? How? Somebody said it. He did it by the Holy Spirit. He didn't act in his God spiritual nature, all-powerful nature as a man. He acted as a man, surrendered, submitted, filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus had to be fully human so that he could face all the trials and temptations that we experience and not sin. See, otherwise, how could he represent us? How could he be a perfect one better than us if he didn't have to put up with anything we've had to put up with? Is that right? Some of you have had great struggles and some of you are struggling today. And it's easy to say he doesn't understand. Oh, he does, but he does. And he left his godhood in heaven and lived as a human on earth filled with the Spirit. That's the only way that he was qualified to take away our sin. He had to be able to die. God can't die. A spirit can't die. A human man can die. Hebrews 2, 14 through 17. Now Joseph was a good man and Mary was a righteous woman. And they really could have had a good child. I've got a good child at my house. My grandson stayed with me last night. In fact, I had my grand boy and my grand dog. I had my other daughter's puppy. So we have two puppies at our house today. I don't know if Leanne's going to make church. But a good, righteous couple can have a good child. You have a good child. Some days. <laughs> well, some days. <laughs> but see, the good's from Anna. From you, I'm... Well stated. But they could produce a child who was honest and wise. They could have trained a child to obey God's commands and who, 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 who desired to do God's will. But they could not produce sinless God in human flesh. And Jesus had to be fully God, completely sinless, to die in payment for my sins and for yours. In other words, you know what? I can't die for my own sins. You realize that? 
because my life isn't sufficient to pay the price. Sins against an eternal being can only be satisfied by the death of an eternal being. God is sovereign. He's not bound by physical limitations. And through his providence, he can make physical changes in us. He can enable conception. He can heal disease. Do you need for God to work in your body or in the body of someone that you know? He's not bound to do what we ask, but he does delight to give us what we ask. You know, that's why every Sunday we have people here that pray for, for folks. We, they anoint with oil according to James chapter 5. Sometimes God heals physically, spiritually, even emotionally. God has the power. All we do is ask, and he decides, but God has the ability. So pray in faith and ask God. God's providence is also demonstrated through Jesus' birth occurring at a specific time and place. See, God arranges circumstances to fulfill his purposes and plans through his providence. That's his action. Look at Luke 2. At that time, the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. Censuses were conducted for tax purposes in the Roman Empire. Now God planned for the birth of his son to happen at a certain time. He sent the Holy Spirit to conceive this child in this young woman, Mary. Young teenager. And he knew her pregnancy stage when he arranged a relocation. Another prophecy that was 700 years before Jesus' birth is found at Micah 5.2. And it says that that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And it's repeated in Matthew chapter 2, 4 through 6. But Mary is just about full term, right? And she lives in Nazareth, 70 miles away. So God caused a Roman emperor who didn't believe in him, who was polytheistic, worshipped numerous idols, to issue a decree that supported God's plan by requiring Joseph to travel to the town of his ancestor, David, with Mary, his betrothed wife. And look what it shows about God. Look at this from Proverbs 21. The Lord can control a king's mind as he controls a river. And he can direct it as he pleases. Now, not many of us are dealing with kings right now, are we? 
Any of you dealing with kings? Any of you dealing with rebellious children? How about difficult spouses? How about oppressive bosses? How about alienated brothers or sisters? Do you believe this verse? You know, how much do we complain about those people versus how much we pray that God would intercede? Do we really believe that God can turn the king, the boss, the spouse, the child, the parent, the cousin, the brother and sister, the way he redirects a river? See, we would think redirecting a river is impossible. Not with God. Not with God. These are expressions of God's providence. You know, now I'm going to say something, then it doesn't apply to any of you, of course, I'm sure. It seems God's not really at work in our culture, doesn't it? I mean, is that a fair statement? How much are we praying? When's the last time you prayed for our culture? How much time do you spend in prayer about these subjects. You know, we wonder, we're frustrated by them, we complain about them, we complain about the culture, we complain about lost kids, we complain about all these things. How much do we pray? Because if we believe God is sovereign and He can providentially change circumstances, why don't we pray? You hear what I'm saying? Continues at Luke 2. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, his fiancée, who was obviously pregnant. Any of you look obviously pregnant ever at like eight, nine months? Obviously pregnant. She was actually his betrothed. Now think about it. Okay, now she's close to full term. She could have delivered a little early, perhaps. Would any pregnant woman, what did she, how did she get there? Oh, y'all have been so well taught. I didn't hear donkey a single time, did I? But every Christmas card said she had a donkey. No donkey in the text at all. She may, I mean, who would want to ride a donkey nine months? Some of y'all would, didn't want to ride in a car, right? So maybe she walked. Perhaps she got pulled in a cart. But I'm going to tell you, the road was terrible. Perhaps. She wouldn't have gone willingly, would she? I mean, when you were that pregnant, if your husband had said, come on, we're going to take a journey, you know, from drive to here, here for Texas. I mean, what if he said, come on, let's go walk down Main Street and look at the lights. You'd go, will you look at me? Have you lost your mind? She wouldn't have gone without being forced. Sometimes... God forces us 
into where we need to be. Have you noticed that? And sometimes, I'll say this, most of the time it doesn't come in pleasant ways. It comes from being fired from a job. It comes from being broken up with. It comes from having some serious illness that refocuses our lives. Because we won't do it on our own. Mary would not have walked 70 miles, even if it meant to fulfill a prophecy. She probably didn't even know about that prophecy. Probably was illiterate and certainly was not more than 15 years old. So God arranged for her to be forced by the Roman census to go to Bethlehem, which was where Jesus had to be born according to prophecy. So God not only chose the place to fulfill the prophecy that he spoke through Micah. You say, well, why didn't he just say Nazareth? He could have. But don't you see that the prophecies of God needed to be difficult to fulfill? But he also determined the best time in history for Jesus to arrive. Galatians 4, 4. But when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. The right time. Now, the occupation of Israel by Rome, you would think that would be the worst possible time, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you think a time of peace under control by other Jews would have been a whole lot more conducive? When Rome was oppressing all the land, not only Israel. It set up the scenario that God chose to be the best time. And so here's some reasons that the time was right. One, there was relative peace because you had Roman soldiers throughout the land. Now, who remembers from school what that was called? The peace of Rome. Some of y'all need to turn your degrees back in. Pax Romana. There were also improved roads. Again, you know why? Because the empire was so far flung, they had to create roads for the soldiers and the, and the leaders to travel on. That could, these roads connected all the distant parts of the empire. Later, it would be Jesus and his disciples, and then later Paul and other evangelists would use the same roads to travel throughout the empire carrying good news also there was one language which even the common people understood but it was Greek because you see the Romans used Greek so due to the, the Roman influence Greek was known by everyone and it would be the language used to write the New Testament there was spiritual openness among the people and the people were beginning to, to um, first ask questions Ask questions about the meaning and the purpose of life. And then some began to pursue God. But you know what precipitated it? What precipitated the pursuit of God? Oppression. Oppression. 
there may be a day when Christians are oppressed, even in this, na- this nation, to turn our hearts back to God. Among the Jews, there was a renewed interest in the Scripture, which they called the Torah, the first five books. And it was leading to revival that was typified by John the Baptist. But also, it, it was also promoting real legalistic rule-keeping by the Pharisees. So it's interesting, some, a good motivation sometimes doesn't produce all good results. One crowd turned to law. The other crowd, though, turned to God. We, and you might say, well, why didn't God wait until he had mass media? I mean, when, isn't that what you say? Doesn't that, doesn't that make sense to anybody? Isn't that more reliable? You know it's true. I read it on the internet. Look at the day we're in. You don't know what truth is. There's so many opinions flying. You have no idea what's true. And as this media proliferates, the amount of grasping truth, it's not going up. It's going down. And as a result, we're projecting our own anger and preferences, and we're getting more and more divided through this wonderful media. But let me tell you this. Good news is not spread best by media or electronic means. You know what? The, the reason we don't do satellites is not because I'm the greatest preacher in the world, but, but I, think, I think that you need me or JC or Josh or Mark or David or whoever's preaching. I think you need somebody living, breathing, You can know where I live. You can look at my wife. You can see my kids. You can watch me with my grandson. And you can decide, not based on my words, it's easy to talk, whether you ought to be listening. You see what I'm saying? Now, you can find something wrong in me. I'm not saying that at all. But I think people need people to lead them. And good news is spread best when it's communicated personally by someone who's experienced the gospel, become born again, and are being improved, transformed, so others can see. God didn't make a mistake. God knew we believe what we can look at, touch, see, ask questions of, observe. And none of that happens electronically. Does it? Are you being changed? Y'all show me some hands if you think you're being changed. I want to see some hands. You're being changed. 
Okay, then everyone that just raised their hands, you don't have to raise it on this one, but I want you to think seriously about this. Who are you telling what caused you to change? That's how the gospel spreads. You know what's happened in America? Comfort, fear of conflict, not wanting to unsettle anything is closing off our witness. But that's the way people hear and see. Like right now, I believe people have an openness at Christmas time. It, you know, it may be motivated by holiday or whatever, happiness, family. That's okay. Who have you invited? Not just to go to the service. Who have you invited to become part of your life and your experience in these Christmas services? We have a service next Sunday. We have a service Christmas Eve. Which y'all know this. Christmas Eve is of no value just for a cultural celebration. But if you are bringing someone and you're interested in praying for them, talking to them, helping lead them to where Jesus laid in the manger so they'll benefit from where Jesus died on the cross. I urge you, I urge you, I urge you. Use what you've been given. You're the best evangelist, not me. Guys on stages aren't the best evangelist. It's the person right beside you who you can't deny is changing. The person at the next desk. The person in the neighborhood. And God's planted that in you. What circumstance do you need for God to change? Ask Him. He might change it. Or He might change you. So you can handle it. I don't know which one he'll do. That's between you and God. Counselors, you come up here. They're here. They're here to anoint you with oil. They're here to pray with you about faith. If you just say, I don't have any faith. I'm full of doubt. Will you pray for me? We welcome doubters. In fact, I think sometimes we don't question enough things. This story of God made man ought to be questioned a lot critically examine it closely but they're here they're also in the care connection room now I'm going to ask you the question we we have six trustees that we are recommending two are added each year they can serve up to three terms and so the six here are the six that we're recommending to serve next year. They're one-year terms. And so if you agree with confirming these men and women, one woman, to serve and represent our church this year, then you stand. And those of you who are opposed, just stay where you are and we'll come get you this afternoon.
I'm going to close this with, with close this service, but I want you to understand I got a text from Praveen early this morning. He forgets we're six or seven hours, and so he gives me information at two in the morning, three in the morning. But this time it was like six, so it was really. But we love him, and we love those children, and a cyclone is coming. And he is concerned that this rain could destroy their reserves of rice and firewood. Our God is sovereign. He can providentially turn this cyclone. Let's ask him. Father God, I pray that you would intervene. Lord, intervene on behalf of these children and Praveen. God, turn that cyclone, stop the wind, cease the rain, God. Protect them. Provide for their needs. But Lord, there, there's cyclones and rainstorms going on in people's lives seated in this room. And God, I ask you to, to part the heavens. Make a difference in their lives. Show who you are to these people. Even this very day. Demonstrate your sovereignty through a providential work of your grace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Thank you for coming. Here at Brookwood Church, our desire is to assist you in pursuing a relationship with Jesus so that you can experience transformed life. One of the ways that you can do that is by getting connected here at Brookwood. If you would like to know more about the many ways you can connect with other Christians at Brookwood, or if you just have questions about who we are, you can email us at connections at brookwoodchurch.org, or you can call us at 864-688-8326. Thank you so much for listening, and have a blessed week.